Amen. Thank you, Pastor Randy. Good morning, church. Happy Resurrection Sunday. Wonderful to be together. Thank you for being here. My name is Chuck. I'm one of the pastors. It's my privilege to open the scriptures with you and explain what it is that we've been singing about and celebrating this morning. Um, If you have a Bible, you could turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. If not, underneath the seat in front of you, you should be able to find a blue Bible. It will be on page 31. And if you have kids um, up through fifth grade parents, you're welcome to have them go to some age-specific teaching. That's offered now. There are some leaders out in the patio that can help. Of course, it's fine to have them stay here as well. Well, as I said, happy Resurrection Sunday. Jesus is alive. Our Savior reigns. We Christians, of course, celebrate this fact every Sunday, even every day. But on this weekend in particular, we especially bask in the glory of a risen King. Now, you've probably come today expecting a sermon on the resurrection, rightly so. The Bible gives us lots of material from which to draw. There are no shortage of passages about Jesus' sacrificial death and his victorious resurrection from which we could pull. Think, for example, of uh, we could study one of the New Testament letters as it unpacks the theological significance of the cross and the resurrection. Or we could go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, those gospels where the actual events themselves of Jesus' life and the death and the empty tomb are recounted. We could dip back into one of the Old Testament prophets, those books where in part there's a pointing ahead, a foretelling that one day would come a forever king, God himself, who would be incarnated, who would live a life of perfect obedience, who would die a death in other people's place, rise again in victory and ascend to heaven from which he will return one day. All those things written long before Jesus took on flesh. Any one of these passages would do, but today we want to go back even further, back some 3,500 years ago to what is known as the Exodus. For there in Egypt, we find the anticipatory event, the key one that the whole Bible sets forth as the reality we celebrate today. There we find in Exodus 12, a glorious study of the record of the Passover and Exodus. Now, this will be an unusual Easter sermon for maybe 27 minutes. You might wonder, what does this have to do with resurrection? And then for the final three, see what I did there? The final three, it should be clear. In these powerful historical events, we find the biblical paradigm for redemption. The very miracle Jesus set forth to accomplish on the cross and resurrection. So if you want to understand or grasp the meaning of Easter, then our message today will teach us to study the prototype. Slow down and look carefully 
for this Passover and this Exodus showcase salvation. They revealed the de- that deliverance from slavery and rescue from judgment must come by the blood of a substitute. Follow along with me, if you would, in your Bibles, starting in verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night, up, go, out from my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go, serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said. Be gone. Bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in the cloaks on the shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor from the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, very much livestock, both flocks and herds. They baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it's not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves." The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the host of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out from the land of Egypt. So that same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. That night started like any other for most people living in Egypt. They had dinner, perhaps enjoyed a bit of rest, no doubt gave recognition in some way, shape, or form to one or more of their 2,000 gods, and then went to sleep. But over the course of the next few hours, everything changed. Moses and Pharaoh had been in a, a bit of a battle God commanded Pharaoh to release all the Jewish slaves through the mouth of Aaron by the word of Moses, letting them out of slavery in Egypt so they could instead depart to serve God instead. Friends, every human being serves someone, either God or something we act as is God. But Pharaoh himself believed he was divine, and so he defiantly refused to submit. No God of lowly slaves would tell him what to do. He and his people, you see, were content with their idolatry. 
Consequently, God sent plagues as uh, acts of judgment on both the gods of Egypt and the Egyptians. Until this moment we've just read about, there had been nine of them. Every judgment was an invitation, an invitation to see there's only one God and to choose to turn to Him and worship Him alone. But Pharaoh and the Egyptians would not budge. Pharaoh's heart was hard as a rock, and so eventually this tenth and final plague came. It was by far the worst. That reality is captured in verse 30. In those words, there was not a house where someone was not dead. All across the land, in home after home after home, the firstborn son died. Whether one lived in luxury, like Pharaoh, or in Section 8 housing, in all the unnamed poor, that night, every single home shared exactly the same fate. That night, in righteous judgment, the Lord took the life, the life of the firstborn by means of the angel of death. How exactly, you ask? Well, at the Lord's command, this angel came looking for a sign. Every house where people inside the house were trusting God, where they had thus put the sign on their doors, the angel passed over. But on every home where people trusted themselves and they served false gods instead, every home that had no sign, every home without a substitute, then the judgment was exacted. The scriptures are clear. The wages of sin is death, physical death and spiritual death, separation from God. These are the just, righteous, good consequences for sin. Death, you see, is not natural. It isn't normal. It's not the way it was supposed to be. It came about only as a result of treason against God, first among Adam and Eve, and then, of course, among every human who've ever lived since then, save one. Yesterday, I read one author that put this very simply. He said this, death, according to the Bible, is not the result of physical frailty. Death is a judicial verdict the consequence of human rebellion against the Creator. God's people's homes that night were covered by the sign of their substitute. But the Egyptians' homes were not. That fateful night revealed that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so a death came to every household. In some households, that was the death of a lamb, a lamb as a substitute. In every other household, it was the death of the firstborn. 
What frogs and locusts, hail and fire, blood and boils and gnats and death. It's urging me on. (laughs) What all those other plagues couldn't do, this one did. This one accomplished bringing about salvation, that which we enjoy and celebrate today in Christ. Pharaoh relented. He said, go. Because Pharaoh woke to the news of the death of his son, the prince of Egypt, just like every other household in Egypt. Pharaoh's house was struck with the horrid smell of death. And so he called for Moses and Aaron. And if you look at verse 31 and 32 and look carefully, there are seven rapid commands in which he's just urging them to get out. He demanded the Jews leave, leave Egypt. Leave Egypt where they would quit serving him as a false god and go out in freedom where they'd serve God as the true God. In fact, it wasn't just Pharaoh urging them to go. All Egypt was ready, rolling out the red carpet, ushering the people, as it were, out to their freedom in Christ. The Lord had shown himself victor. Where was Amun-Ra, the greatest god of Egypt? Where was he that night? Where was his daughter, Bastet, the goddess of protection? Where was Heket, the god of magic and medicine, as Holmes cried out for help? They didn't come because they're not real. They didn't protect Egypt because they don't exist. The Egyptians had put their hopes in gods that aren't gods. And therefore, in the end, when they needed them the most, they could not deliver. But the God, the God did just that. But remember, not every household lost a son. Some homes bore the sign I know this is weird, but the sign was the blood of the substitute smeared around the outside of the frame of the door to the house. Earlier in this chapter, Exodus 12, verse 13, we read these words, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when you see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Many of you were here just a few hours ago as we celebrated Good Friday, where Josh so helpfully explained that God gave instructions for every household to slay a lamb and eat it and smear its blood around the entrance Why this weird sign? Well, the life, of course, is in the blood. And the life of the animal was 
taken. And therefore, that sign, the sign that would provide life, was put on the homes. The blood served as a sign such that when the angel of death came, every home where a substitute had already died, no additional judgment was required. The angel then passed over, sparing the firstborn there. Who would have imagined that the rescue of the people of God would hinge on a lamb and blood? Who would have thought? Now, it's crucial we remember, of course, there's nothing special about these lambs. They, just like all the rest, there's nothing special about them other than they were used by the people of God as an act of obedience. They were used by God's people in faith. Faith, trust, rest, belief in what God says. That's what's required for you to know this substitute as your own. Believing God, trusting him as he provides a substitute. That's it. Whenever the substitute is applied, the exodus is sure to follow. That's why most of this passage we just read is not about the Passover itself, but about the exodus out. Verses 33 to 42 recount the exodus of God's people out of slavery to Pharaoh and into service to God. Their haste, their rescue, their fast, rapid exit is pictured by the unleavened bread. The image, of course, is that the the yeast hadn't had the ability yet to rise. There wasn't enough time. They had to get out. And their victory, the victory of their God, over all the gods of Egypt is pictured by the plundering of the Egyptians. In the ancient world, when one army would defeat another, they would plunder their goods. And this plundering is a picture that God was victorious over every other so-called God. And ironically, this very plundering of these goods would be used in part to build the tabernacle where the one true God would be worshipped. If you look carefully at verse 38, we'll find that it wasn't only Jewish believers who made this exodus. So powerful was this work of salvation. Others could come too. It says there in 38, a mixed multitude also went up. So clear God's power, so compelling his mercy, so unparalleled his authority that some people from other nations joined in with these slaves and were delivered or exodusedded to. They too went out. 
By faith you see anyone who turns from sin and trust in him will be rescued, will be ushered into a whole new life. Life, at least for a while, until Jesus returns, where there are still problems, where there's still hardship, where the desert is still hot. But life that's lived with God and with God's people until the king returns. The Passover exodus, you see, is the paradigm for redemption. It is the pre-enactment in miniature of the cross and resurrection. Beloved, we too need rescuing. Not, of course, from bondage in Egypt, but from slavery to sin. We need deliverance from the penalty and power of rebellion against God. We all share that. No matter our age or where we're from, how much money we have, the particular ways in which we have rebelled, we all share the same reality. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so this rescue, this redemption is offered to all, and it's possible only by the blood of the substitute. And so today on this Easter, we celebrate that which Passover and Exodus only foreshadowed. We celebrate the salvation which Christ fully accomplished in his death and resurrection. Amen? Jesus, you see, is a vastly superior substitute. Jesus, you see, is no mere animal. He's no mere miniature sign. He's the real thing. Because he's perfect. So if we fast forward from Exodus 12 all the way through the rest of the Old Testament and we find ourselves on the pages of the New Testament, new because now we're in the new covenant, new because Jesus has come, new because new life has been opened up by him. We find ourselves there, then we hear over and over and over again echoes of the Old Testament. But somehow the echo is even stronger, even clearer. It's incredible. Seeing Jesus, we hear John the Baptist declare, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John chapter 1. We hear Peter later write to Christians, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. 1 Peter chapter 1. We rejoice as Paul himself announces that Jesus is our Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians 5. 
We marvel as the Apostle John writes of this Jesus who will return in Revelation, I saw a lamb. Revelation 5. This is just a tiny sample. It's all over the place. Friends, Jesus is the ultimate substitute because Jesus himself never sinned. He's the perfect sacrifice. Therefore, everyone, even you, even me, even us, everyone who turns from sin and trust in him can be saved. This enormous mixed multitude God is gathering to himself and we're headed together not merely out of Egypt but out of death into everlasting life. What Exodus only provided as the shadow we now live in the substance, the real thing. Now, how do we know this to be true? I mean, these are major, major claims. If they're not true, what are you doing here? What does the Bible put forth as the proof that everything I've said is in fact fact, the resurrection. Why rest assured that God's righteous judgment upon sinners was satisfied with the death of Jesus? Because God the Father said so by resurrecting God the Son. Jesus rose. He rose transformed, never to die again. you too can find the penalty of your sin paid and the power of your sin shattered. Not by your labors, but by His. You see, nothing we can do can rescue us out of the judgment we deserve or the slavery we're ensnared in. But... Jesus came for that very reason. And the resurrection proves it. If you already know Jesus as Savior and Lord, I want to encourage you this morning, this Easter morning, to enjoy afresh the reality that you live now and forever bound in the love of God bound and held because the substitute, his death, has been your death. And his life is now your life. Yes, we still have troubles from here until he returns. Let's go. We still have troubles, but there are troubles with him 
and with each other. And he will bring us safely home. And friend, if this substitute has never yet been applied to you, do you know deep down that this is true? Do you see your need? Have you tried everything else to no avail? Then in the providence of God, you're here today. You're here today that the substitute might be applied to you. All that you need to do is in your own way, in your own words. Tell God, I have lived as though I'm serving other gods that aren't gods at all. I've been enslaved to my sin. And in your mercy, I believe that Jesus died and rose again. Can that lamb be my substitute? And then, friend, in that moment, new life, new life forever is yours. This is the meaning of Easter. Let's pray. Before I pray, would you take a moment and interact with God about what He has said to you through His Word? Father, we simply say thank you. Thank you that you have not left us in our moral filth, but you came down and joined us in it in Christ. We thank you that in Exodus we see a pointing ahead, a very, very, very clear pre-enactment, the anticipatory event that sets up What we now know in your Gospels, in the New Testament, is the real thing, fully accomplished salvation. Thank you that the Bible from cover to cover tells one cohesive story of your love, your love in rescuing people like us into new life, that we might be your people and give you glory and praise forever. And it's that which we give ourselves to today and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.